This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Welcome to the Reading the Bible Well Life Zone. This is the final session today. I'm just milking it. Um, So we're going to be exploring an unusual, well, a text that includes a very unusual verse from our perspective as uh, late slash postmodern educated Western Christians today. And uh, rather than do what I've done the last few, last couple of mornings, which is getting you reading and then picking out details, I'm going to try and just lead us through. So uh, what I might do is get you to read the text in a bit, and then I'll teach through, And because I'm trying to get you to think in, this, in a similar kind of way about picking out details and noticing things, right? but it's, quite a, it's a little bit more complex, perhaps. So, uh, so I'll, I'll teach through a text in a little while, and uh, we'll have some fun doing that. And I'm very open to interruptions and things, by the way, so long as they're sensible interruptions. Um, <laughs> Please don't shout yabba dabba do. Um, you know, amen, yes. Um, now, I thought, what I realized at the end of yesterday is when, it, when I'd said the kind of the benediction, I realized, oh, we've, I didn't give any chance for any Q&A. Um, can you just put your hand up if you've been here both sessions so far? Oh, wow, and you've come back. That's remarkable. Um, so uh, let's, I want to give just a bit of space for, in the first few minutes just to, just to bat things around. I know not everybody, I'm, a, I'm an external processor, who knew? Um, and, uh, and, and I like to just kind of talk things out and figure things out by talking it out. Um, some of my team, one of which is here at the front, is an, in, an internal processor. And so when we discuss things in eldership meetings, we come to him last. So he has the chance to think about it before we, uh, you know, before we quickly move on. So maybe you've been just stewing on things, chewing things over, talking things through. Uh, and it'd be great just to give some space. If there are questions, uh, it could be immediately related to something that we've done in the last couple of days, or it could be completely tangential, but just something that you wanted to ask. Now, a couple of people have asked me things just even before we started, and I want you to just be free of fear. There's no stupid questions in this context. There's no such thing as a daft question. It's just pride that keeps us from asking questions that we think are a little bit silly because we don't want to look foolish in front of other people. But this is about learning, and when that is at stake, there's no daft questions, is there? So, anyone got anything? Hello, just tell me your name as well, and I'm pretty... Davis, hello. Yeah, okay. Did you all hear the question? Okay, next steps for how you, can, how you can develop this. Okay, it's great. Well, there's loads of resources, and it depends really upon what you want to do with this. Um, if you are a preacher or a teacher, or if you're in ministry of some sort, um, there are lots and lots and lots of books about interpreting Scripture. Uh, there's a book called Reading the Bible Wisely, um, which I sort of half stole the title from, uh, from a, a tutor of mine from Durham University called Richard Briggs, which is accessible and uh, not stupidly expensive. Some Christian books, if you've noticed, the ones that are not the popular ones are really expensive, and that's why. <laughs> that's why they're not popular. Um, there's a book by Scott McKnight called The Blue Parakeet. 
which, believe it or not, is about reading the Bible. Um, (laughs) Really? It sounds like a Rob Bell book about something completely else, doesn't it? But it's actually about reading the Bible. Um, The other thing that you can do is, uh, is 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 to get commentaries. Okay. I know that's probably not particularly in vogue now. I had a scan of the bookshelf, uh, the bookshop over here, and there aren't any. Well, there are. There's some of the Phil Moore's commentaries, but that's it. There's no other commentaries, um, and there's loads of commentaries. And the best commentaries are the ones that give you not just here's what you need to think about the text, but they bring you into what other people have thought about the text and have commented upon it. Um, There's nothing new, really. Um, Tradition is something that we all live in. We're all building on what somebody else has thought somewhere. Uh, And so the best commentaries gather all that up and help you to access them. There's there's some good kind of sets of commentaries. Uh, The New Interpreter's Bible is a really good one. You can buy the individual volumes. They're big and they're black and they look really good on your bookshelf. Um, they're even better if you read them. Um, <laughs> Pete over here gets one every year for, his, for Christmas. Yeah, it's like uh, the family knows now. You don't need to ask what to buy Pete. Get him one of those volumes. Um, and it's, uh, each volume, if you get the whole set, you've got a commentary on the whole of the Bible um, and introductions to each book of the Bible. Um, that's valuable. Uh, get the introductions to the New Testament, introductions to reading the Old Testament. Uh, there are loads and loads of resources out there on uh, like an intro to reading scripture. Um, just hunt, hunt those things out. Um, it's tricky because there's things that, that I read that I think, oh yeah, I enjoyed that and that was quite straightforward and I rec- give it to people and they go, I don't understand a single word. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of cautious and obviously people are coming from different perspectives and things. Start with Briggs and Scott McKnight, Blue Parakeet, just really, really good. Um, there's a little booklet by a guy called Richard Bockham, which is called How Can the Bible Be Authoritative Today? It's in the Grove Books, uh, Grove Booklets series. Um, that's fantastic. Really, really, really good. Short, clear, helpful, useful. Um, I'd thoroughly recommend that. And it's about two ninety-nine. You can probably get it for 1p on that kind of... Um, Amazonian-based website. Um, so, uh, yeah, have a, look at, have a look for those things. And well, um, It's Richard Bockham. Um, hang on, let me write the names down, and then you can just take them down if you want later on. So, Richard Briggs, double G, Richard Briggs, Scott... Uh, Oh, is it MC? Oh, I can't remember how you spell his name. McKnight. Richard. Bockham. Um, By the way, if you're interested... Ah, yeah, actually, that's a good... Right. This is a good series. You might have seen these. I don't know. There's there's a bunch of books out called The Theology of the Book of... Um, There's one... Richard Bockham has one on the Book of Revelation. Um, If you've ever thought like most people have who've tried to read Revelation, what the heck, um, then that's a brilliant book. It's about 140 pages long, uh, and it's probably more valuable than getting 
whopping great big commentaries um, because it helps you to think theologically about the book of Revelation, which is really, really important. Um, I would thoroughly recommend that. We did a series on the book of Revelation last year, and we used that book along with some of the hefty commentaries as well. But it's so, so valuable. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has one. I, I see that hand. Um, Walter Brueggemann has one on the book of Jeremiah. There's one by Walter Mobley on the book of Genesis. Um, there's probably about 30 other Walters out there because it seems like a good name for Old Testament scholars. Um, but certainly, Search those out. I, can't, I think there may be Baker Press, perhaps. Um, have you got your phone on you? Can you have a look on Amazon and just check that for me? Um, then uh, that's, uh, they're really, really helpful because they, they plunge you into reading the scripture and thinking about the theology of the scripture. Steve, you had... <laughs> Richard Bockham. <laughs> Right, I'm going to wait. Come on. Who's going to get it right? B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. Well done. You need a degree in linguistics to read my writing. Dave, hi, mate. I don't want to expose all your treasure trove, but apart from Amazon, are there any second-hand books that you find little treasures in general? Oh, yes. What an amazing question. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I shouldn't really tell you just in case. I, oh, thanks, mate, yeah. Um, you need to look on abbooks.com. If you're a, if you're a book geek, then abbooks, A-B-E, books.com. It's all ex-library books. Or oh, uh, uh, oh, is it? No, no, it's not. I tell a lie. It's, it's a great second-hand one. And you'll sometimes find the, the stuff that's from that other place um, for like a quid cheaper um, on ABBooks, or even, even better. Um, and sort of older printings as well. So ABBooks is good. There's a place called uh, Alibris. Alibris. Sorry, Steve, I'm going to write again. A. L. I. B. Or should I do it all in block capitals? That might be easier. Is that clear enough? <laughs> Alibris.com. I think that's maybe the that's old library books. Um, beware with the Libris because sometimes I, I think it comes from the States and so sometimes you, you think yes that's a bargain it's 7,000 pages of commentary for £4 and then you realise the, the postage is about $73 or something um, so it's uh, yeah it's worth just yeah that's a good one a Libris um, hi yeah <laughs> Now, the question goes in my mind now is, do I let my scholarly halo slip? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, for sure. There's, there's pieces that you think, well, mm, all right. Um, but that's, that's part of the issue of reading a text that we're thousands of years away from, culturally, religiously, socially, everything. Um, and that's just part and parcel of, of, of handling you know, an, an ancient text. I think when you get, I mean, I, uh, there's, a, there's a very, actually, here's another recommendation. There's a great commentary set called Interpretation. Um, it's, there's, I think probably there's a, there's a volume for every book of the Bible, the Interpretation series. It's in Westminster, John Knox. So if you search Interpretation WJK in whatever online shop you are, uh, then you'll find you'll find commentaries they're very accessible and good some of them missed chapters so i have patrick miller's 
interpretation commentary on the book of, is it Jeremiah, his one? On Jeremiah. And, and he misses bits. Like, what? what, what? Uh, and, but that I can sort of understand why, because you've got a limited page count with your, you know, your publisher, uh, and you've got particular emphases and things that you want to express. And so you're, you know, there are certain, the reality is that certain parts of the Bible are m- more, uh, how do I say this without sounding like I've lost the plot? Certain bits of scripture are, are more clearly and obviously authoritative and shaping for us, okay? That's just the reality of it. Right, there are bits of scripture that are very, very key and very, very important that we, that, that we focus on. And there are other parts of scripture where you think, well, that doesn't really have too much bearing on me. So the lists of names and divisions of Levites and things like that and numbers, it's like, well, I, I just tend to skim those when I get to those passages in numbers. It's like, well, or I look at the last bit and, can, you know, I don't, I've never sat down and added them all up um, just to see whether it is 144,000 or whatever it is. Um, it, it's, yeah, some parts, yeah, you, you are just going to find that some things, well, yeah, okay. But then sometimes bits that you think don't really say much can actually prove to say loads to you. We're going to look at a text in a bit that's got this verse where it's like, oh, what does that mean? Nothing. But actually it means loads. So we're going to do just that. Intrigued? Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. I've been here for the past two and I've struggled both times with the first bit of just picking out the detail. I've always struggled with that kind of thing. Okay. Have you got any tips for it or any questions that you ask yourself and like go through when you're doing that? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is... What what can you do to actually, you know, if you struggle to actually pick out details, um, is there anything that you can do that can help you to do that as you read through? Um, I think that one of the things that is important to learn to do is is pay attention to words like me, I, he, us, we, pronouns, yeah. Um, it's really instructive to read something like Galatians and think about those questions. Because we tend to, when, when we read the Bible, we tend to read all the pronouns about being about me. And so we read us, and we immediately think me. But often when Paul says us, he's not talking about you. He's talking about I and my team of apostles, or we Jews. So when you read the book of Ephesians, for example, it's very important to notice that in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about, there's all this corporate language, uh, ours, ours, us. And then he says in 1 verse 13, in him, you also. And you think, hang on, I remember seeing it thinking, wait a minute. I've read all this stuff about, you know, in him, we were predestined and da, 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 as being about me. But who's Paul talking about? Because suddenly he says, you. And it's like, wait, that's a very deliberate shift. And so you kind of begin to read and notice, you know, if I read a letter, from, you know, you read a letter from my nan and she's talking to me. Uh, and so it's, um, except my, man, my nan's passed away, but I, that's what I would read. But you wouldn't read somebody else's nan's letter in the same way, would you? You would be thinking, well, what's being said here? And who is the we and the you and the they and all the rest of it? Um, and then in Ephesians 2, Paul goes on, doesn't he? And then he's, in, in chapter 2, it starts off with, um, oh, you'd think that after 20 years in New Frontiers, 
you would be able to remember off the top of your head how Ephesians 2 begins, wouldn't you? But it's failing me. And you were dead, right, in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, um, among the spirit of the power of the air, uh, among whom we all once lived. And then there's we and we, and then you also. And so there's this contrast between Gentile, Jew, and it runs all the way through in Ephesians. And then chapter 2 comes on, therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh. And so rather than read every single pronoun as just being about me, think about what Paul's actually saying and who is the reference there. Is it the community? Is it him? Is it the Jews? Um, and that's really, really important. So there's just a little, that's a little hint. I'll try and pick out those things. Um, you can have that back, actually. Cheers. Um, there's a lady called Ellen Cherry who, uh, who wrote about... Uh, there's a book called um, The Art of Reading Scripture. That's a really good one. If, you, if that's a little bit more advanced, perhaps, it's a collection of essays... Um, of biblical scholars and theologians. And Ellen Cherry says that when we're reading scripture or using scripture in church, uh, you're looking for basically what is there here? What, what can I learn about God? What do I need to repent of? Uh, and what is there here that, oh, I can't forget what the third thing is. It's what, do I, what is there here that speaks to me about my neighbor? Uh, and it's a really handy little three-way thing. You know? What do I learn about God? What do I need to repent of? Um, and reading for th- theology and faith and repentance is quite good. So when you're picking details out of the text, you could think about that as well. What do I, what's the theological significance of this? How does that shape the way that I believe, the way I act? Um, that, that's a part of it. Um, genre, think about the genre. You don't read a newspaper the same as you read a T.S. Eliot poem, I presume. <laughs> and I, you don't read a Haynes manual for a mini um, in the same way that you would read a comic. It's a different kind of literature. You don't read the, the local Chinese restaurant menu in the same way that you read the book of Ephesians. Right? Not all literature is the same. This is the Bible, but it's made up. The, you know, the, Bible, is, the Bible is not a self-evident term, by the way. We talk about the Bible, but we, we forget that uh, most of what we call the Bible exists in another format as the Hebrew Scriptures. Right? But they don't have the additions, the appendix, which we call the New Testament. Right? So this collection of documents we call the Bible together. And it's a whole load of different genres and historical moments and authors. And there's a great variety there. Uh, and we lose some of that by flattening it into just calling it the Bible. Uh, we have to think about the genre a little bit. What kind of literature is this? How do I understand poetry? What's the point of poetry? Or prophecy? What's the point? Of, what's prophecy for? When I go out into York sometimes on a Saturday night, this doesn't happen very often. <laughs> the state of my life, um, and there's somebody staggering around drunk in the road, I might say, hey, hey, you're going to get run over. And I'm not promising that they're going to get run over. I'm warning them that unless they come out of the road, they're going to get run over. Now, they might ignore my warning, and the number one bus will come along, and oops. Uh, or they might go, oh, gosh, thank you, and they might come out of the road. Prophecy is often like that in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is like that. I'm going to come like a refiner's fire and like full of soap among you. That's a warning. Change. 
it's not a prediction necessarily as much as it is a warning to come back and to return. And yes, there are predictive elements of prophecy, but primarily the role of the prophet in the Old Testament (laughs) is to warn and speak and call the people back. All right, so it's important to understand that. Um, Here's another good book. Uh, You're getting a smorgasbord of things. Um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, they've got a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, That's that's a good introduction to reading scripture. I think you can probably still get that. I haven't seen it out there in the bookstore, but again, uh, the well-known website will probably have it. Um, uh, They talk about the prophets as covenant enforcers. So the prophets know the Torah. They know what it says about blessings and curses, depending upon obedience or faithlessness. And they speak appropriately for God. They they pronounce blessing or they warn about judgment because they are seeing and observing the state of the king and therefore the nation. And they call it out, which is fascinating. This morning... I nearly, I nearly just sacked my notes off to do this, so we'll see. Maybe it will still happen. I was reading uh, 1 Kings 17, the story about Elijah. And it's really, really interesting because God never tells Elijah to speak at the beginning of 1 Kings 17. Have you ever noticed that before? It doesn't say, God said to Elijah, say to Ahab. It just says, now Elijah... The Tishbite, the son of Tishbe, spoke to Ahab and said, by my word, it will not rain. Or it will not rain until I say so. There's nothing there that says God told him to speak. Elijah just spoke. And then a couple of verses later, it says, and the word of the Lord came to him saying, go to the Kerith brook and hide yourself. So Elijah speaks And then God speaks. And it's very, very interesting. Because we all think, oh, well, he must have, and I've heard, we've heard sermons from people that, you know, oh, he heard God in prayer. Well, he just calls it out. He sees Ahab, he sees the state of things, and his name means the Lord is God. And he just calls it out. (laughs) And then God tests the prophet, because he has to go and hide by a brook that runs out of water. And he's a prophet, and he knows that you shouldn't touch that kind of food and that kind of food. And dirty carrion birds bring him dead meat to eat. Isn't that a test for a prophet? Flipping heck. You're supposed to be the covenant upholder. And now you've called it out to Ahab, and God sent you away. To, to, and, and, the te- and the test there is, will you short-circuit the process? God calls you to this place where it's gonna, you're going to run out of water. You're going to die unless God comes through for you. The brook runs out, and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's like, whoa. So you see this. You know, Elijah goes out on a stretch for God almost. He goes on a punt for God. Come on. And then it's tested. It's dramatic. See, that's just noticing details of the text. But this is what the prophets do. Okay? They call things out. They speak. Walter Brueggemann says, truth speaks to power. It's the, it's the prophetic voice that speaks to kings and speaks to the nation and says, hey, you're out of whack. It's the plumb line, as Ginny would say. It's wonderful. We have conversations sometimes. Her, as a, from a prophetic perspective, she's like, it's the word of God, it's the plumb line. And I go, yes, from a teacher's perspective, the word of God is the plumb line. And we, we go, yes. We have little triumphalistic parties together. <laughs> if you can imagine Ginny doing such things, 
Um, okay, uh, any other questions? Oh, no, I'm just banging on and on and on. Hello, yes. Okay, so the question is, what the chiastic structure, um, so that's when you have sort of outer pairs, um, where you've got like a, a section, a, a, a theme, and then a theme, and then a middle section. Um, the, the middle section is kind of a point, so it's the pivot. What sort of proportion of scripture is in that format? Um, I don't know. Um, once, once you're alert to that kind of thing, you can see it all over the place. Um, and sometimes... I wonder, and others have wondered, well, is it, are you just kind of reading it in? Um, I think it's a useful way of looking at it and trying to see, you know, structure in there. Um, some authors like it more than others, so Mark uses it a lot. Um, you can see it on a much smaller scale through the prophets. Um, it's like a, it's just a sort of poetic parallelism where you get A, A1, B1, B. <laughs> Um, where you've got this sort of repetition of a point, and that repetition is kind of making a point, you know, saying it two ways so that you really get it. Um, so, yeah, uh, and then sometimes, some, some books, I think, probably have that. There's larger sections within uh, a, a book that will have that structure to it. Um, there's a fascinating one in Mark chapter 3 when uh, Jesus family here that he's, he's teaching and they think that he's out of his mind and so they send to him, they try and kind of get him and it's the point where Jesus says who are my mother and my brothers it's, you know, it's these uh, and the structure there, you've got Jesus' nuclear family if you like or his, his biological family on, on the outside and then the crowds and then the scribes and the Pharisees and then in the middle, the disciples and it's really interesting because it says that these people who are actually by rights, we're probably closest to him, are the furthest away. And then the crowds are the next furthest away, and the scribes and the Pharisees are the next nearest. But they don't quite get it either. But the ones who are really seeing it are the disciples. That's so really, really interesting to know. You pick out details of the groups of people and how that's being described is, uh, is an interesting way of seeing it, yeah. But there's all kinds of literary devices and things that you can, yeah. Any others? Or should, we, or should we crack on? Crack on. All right, excellent. Um, turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy, chapter 14. I doubt there's going to be many underlined bits in this in your Bible. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. That'd be great if it is. And I'd like you to read verse 1 to verse 21. Okay. And then turn to the person next to you and say, what did you think of that? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 21. And employ all those cool skills about reading and details that you've picked up the last couple of days. <laughs> and structure, and all the rest. Um, yeah. Um, how can I summarize in the first few days? Okay. So the first couple of days, I have explained that 
one of the keys to reading the Bible well is to, is to read a passage and to describe in detail what is there before you start to interpret. Okay? So what are the details? What does it actually say? What do the words say? Not what do you think it means, but what does it say? All the details like people, places, repetition of phrases, the structure of the text, um, and then... We've, what we've done is we've written it all on the board, everyone's observations, and then we've said, okay, so how do, how do we then interpret what these details mean? So we're trying to allow the text to speak rather than us reading into the text itself. Okay? So when I say reading through the text now, looking for details, it's trying to pick out, and there's a lot of details in this text, um, but it's looking for you know, repetition, ideas, what is there here, what does it say? Um, not necessarily what does it mean for me immediately. Okay? Is that all right? Okay. Okie dokie. Phil says this is Jamie Oliver's food for schools <laughs> in an Israelite context. <laughs> Maybe. So... I, I'm using the ESV text here, and verse 21 reads, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All right? It's something in Judaism still, I think, that mixing meat and dairy is still, like a, it's still a taboo thing. It's a fascinating verse. Uh, I, I, and what the heck? When you, well, why? And, and this, this, is a, this is Christian scripture. We, we are reading this not as ancient Jews, but we are reading this as Christian scripture. So how on earth do we approach a text like this? What on earth does it mean? Does it mean anything? Uh, and I guess that our tendency is probably to think, well, this has no relevance to me whatsoever. Beware when you think that. Because sometimes the things that you think have the least relevance turn out to have the very most relevance. Now, I don't know if anybody here is addicted to uh, goats cooked in mother's milk, but we can arrange a ministry time at the end uh, for all of you. Uh, or I might just be kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah. Enough said about that. Um, Deuteronomy as a book is fascinating. It's a book on the borders. All right. In the book of Deuteronomy, this, is, this describes the Israelites on the borders of the promised land. And it's basically a series of sermons delivered by Moses to the people as they are about to enter in. So it reflects back. In, in some ways, it's, and of course, it's written post-events. So this is not Moses scribing it down as he delivers it. There's no podcasts and digital dictaphones in those days, of course. So this is a later reflection looking back on Moses and the Israelites looking back reflecting on going forwards. So it's a fascinating, confu- whoa, what's going on here? But unless you get your bearings with that, you sort of think, well, this is what's going on. Remember, because it was a sermon originally, it would be heard. This would all be heard. And so when you're reading the long passages in the Old Testament and the Torah, the Pentateuch in particular, remember this was heard. It's sermons, it's oral. And so there's repetition of key phrases. Um, You get particularly things in Leviticus, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and then at the end of the passage, and Moses did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, and Moses did, according to all the Lord said. And if you think about the effect of that being heard, 
that, that oral sense, you know, oh, okay, yeah, well, it makes sense, doesn't it, then? Of course, when we read it, it can be different. Maybe we should meet up and... News, England have lost the ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in, a, in our culture, we should get together and read it to one another. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Rather than making Bible study, I sit on my own and read in a pious manner. Uh, with a nice coffee and a notebook, a moleskin probably. Um, I, I read it to other people. Um, be interesting. So this is, this is read out. It's, it's something that would have been heard by the first hearers. It's something that would have been read out uh, in the in, in, in Israelite context. Uh, and possibly in exile, a very, very important time to be hearing texts that affirm an identity. Who are we as the people of God? What does it mean for us to be the people of Yahweh? Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It comes at the end of a passage that describes the kinds of animals the Israelites are or are not allowed to eat. And it's a slightly confusing list, isn't it? Because it just doesn't really seem to make all that much sense. Uh, You think, well, why that and not that? What's going on with it? Some people have suggested that it's about health and hygiene. In fact, Sarah, then is it? Oh, it sounds like a hygiene lesson. Um, Some people say health and hygiene. Animals that feed on what is basically roadkill are are likely to carry diseases and parasites, um, and so it's unhealthy. And so the law is, don't don't eat something that's going to be harmful to you. Other animals like pigs forage around in the mark. They're unclean. It's nasty. Okay, so there's this suggestion that's out there. These are about hygiene. You're about to enter into the land. You're going into the good land. Don't die in the first week because you eat something rubbish. Another suggestion is that it's a countercultural thing. Okay, so in other words, Israel are about to enter a land that is still populated by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are pagan, and their practices are dangerous. And therefore, these words in Deuteronomy and the Torah as a whole is intended to help the Israelites draw a sharp distinction between the practices of the land and the practices that are meant to honor and glorify Yahweh. So in other words, it could be about trying to dissuade the Israelites uh, from engaging in anything which might draw them into Canaanite worship somehow. Now, both of those suggestions have an element or a certain ring of truthfulness about them. They're both reasonably plausible. We could say, well, okay, I could understand how that might be so. But they also beg some questions, all right? Now, here's a little insight as we go. When you're reading things and you strike upon something that seems like, oh, that sounds pretty good, uh, it's always good to say, all right, how might it not be plausible? So when you find a reading of something and you think, I like this, ask the other question. What might you say that would counter that argument? I think sometimes as evangelicals, we're very good at saying, this is what it says. This is what it means. This is what it means. And we don't really do the work of saying, okay, well, what might somebody else say? Being a good interpreter is being sensitive to the counter argument to your position and gracious enough to accept that that is also a valid reading, even if it is not your reading and your persuasion.
That's an important skill. It's an important skill in life, generally. I like Britney Spears. Britney Spears is rubbish. Well, no, I like Britney Spears. Well, I don't, but I, you know, I can see that you could like her. Right, that's just politeness, isn't it? So we're exercising a little bit of interpretative politeness when it comes to differing views and opinions is, is helpful. Okay? So health and hygiene, possibly. Countercultural issues, dissuading Israel from engaging in Canaanite worship practice, possibly. But if the main concern with the food laws and all those animals and the things that you just read is with health and hygiene, don't you think that it would include poisonous plants as well? Because you know, I don't think that the Israelites were just purely eating meat. I mean, it'd be the dream, wouldn't it? <laughs> I can think, yes, nothing to meat. It's like it's the, it's the, the, the Atkins diet to end all Atkins diets, isn't it? Um, and does the text actually say that pigs are out of the question because they truffle about in the muck? It doesn't actually say that. On top of that, if these are about dissuading the Israelites from engaging in Canaanite religious practice, why do they fail to mention bulls? Because bulls were equally important in Canaanite religion as sacrifices. And in fact, what about sacrifices anyway? Because Israel's whole system of worship was sacrificial. So were the Canaanite practices. So if this is meant to be countercultural, well, it begs some questions. Why not that? And if it's all about hygiene, it begs some other questions. Well, why not that? So maybe there's another reason going on. Historically, uh, and what I mean by historically is in the, the history of interpretation, because, you know, as much as Descartes would want us to start with me as a thinking thing and rethink everything from that point, we, we do live in a tradition. Uh, we're not the first readers and interpreters of Scripture. Historically, interpreters of these passages have used something called allegory. And allegory is basically, a, in a very crude explanation, allegory reads the literal sense of the text and says it refers to something else. So if you were being a little bit scathing about allegory, you might say that the text doesn't actually mean what it says. It means something else. Um, and so perhaps in an allegorical reading of this text, you would find that the different animals actually mean something that they don't really seem to mean when you read them. So here's an example for you. A Jewish philosopher called Philo thought this. This is, this is taken from Philo. Fish with fins and scales symbolize endurance and self-control. Reptiles wriggling along by trailing their bellies, bellies signify persons who devote themselves to their ever-greedy desires and passions. Creeping things, however, which have legs above their feet so that they can leap, ah, are clean because they symbolize the success of moral efforts. That's allegorical reading. That's a Jewish philosopher, Philo. Now, we giggle about it. It sounds fanciful, doesn't it? And perhaps we slough it off as ancient nonsense. But here's a Christian commentator from the beginning of the 20th century. So I'm in the grand sweep of biblical interpretation, pretty recent. A Christian commentator wrote, Hoof divided and cheweth the cud. The dividing of the hoof and the chewing of the cud signified discretion between the good and evil and meditating on the law of God. And where either of these is wanting, man is unclean. In like manner, fishes were reputed unclean that had not fins and scales. 
That is, souls that did not raise themselves up by prayer and cover themselves with the scales of virtue. Now, that sounds, I mean, if you're preaching that, that I can imagine, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but really, it's allegory. Now, what happens sometimes with allegory is it basically means the text is difficult. And I'm going to try and find something to say about it that appears to apply to me. And that's not always a helpful way to go. Uh, by the way, in, in ancient, I suppose medieval and earlier biblical interpretation, there was a control for allegory. It sounds fanciful, but uh, one of the a lady asked me earlier on about interpreting, and the control for allegory was something called the rule of faith. Interpreting scripture was a matter of interpreting it through the rule of faith, which is Jesus is Lord, the confession that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, allegory had to be moored in the gospel. So if you're going to say that that means that, it can't just be any old thing. It has to be something related to the gospel. So there's actually something very virtuous that ancient and medieval interpreters are doing. They're trying to show you how the text bears witness to Jesus. It's a great intention. They just don't always do it in ways that we think is particularly faithful to the text itself. And, and that's, that's the issue, okay? being faithful to the text itself. Now, there's another possibility for understanding the food laws. We talked about hygiene, mm, cultural issues, mm, not allegory. We're not going to do the allegory thing. The third one that I want to suggest is that these are basically identity markers. The food laws form a part of an identity marker for Israel. In other words, they function as a specific set of disciplines that the Israelites are supposed to perform for the sake of marking out and maintaining a unique Israelite identity. Okay? There are lots and lots of these. And in fact, the Gospels, one of the keys to interpreting the Gospels well and wisely is understanding how Jesus uh, redefines what identity means and looks like. So things like Sabbath and food laws and temple and things like that are redrawn and reframed by Jesus. Identity markers are key. And particularly as you're about to enter a land that is a foreign land and you're going to be surrounded and, and you're going to encounter things that press back against your identity markers. I mean, think about the way that it works in our world. Sunday morning is not a break from the norm, is it? Sunday morning is a chance to have your view of reality shaped according to God. And so there's an identity thing. You enter into a world that is not friendly towards God, hostile to him. And so the identity markers that we receive through baptism and the Lord's Supper and things like that are key. They shape our identity. Liturgy shapes your identity, your sense of this is who we are as people. Anyway, going off on a tangent in a sermon, I've got to keep to this. One of the key concerns about identity markers is, is just summed up in one word, holiness. Did you notice how this text began and ended with a reference to holiness? Did you pick that out? Well done. You are well schooled. <laughs> Verse 2, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
And then verse, twi- uh, what was the verse uh, 21, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And then we get the verse about the young goat and its mother's milk. That's really important. Those food laws, framed by a reference to holiness, tell you something about what those food laws are about. They are about holiness. They're about holiness. The question is, what do we mean by holiness? And what we think holiness means might look different, or it might need to be shaped by things. One of the things that happens in the Old Testament, and in the Torah in particular, is you get to see, uh, you get to see the work of a priestly writers and editors and compilers. And priests are concerned with the separation, okay, clean and unclean. They're concerned with this kind of division between the holy and the common. All right? That's part of the priestly thing, dividing, separating, identifying. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it's a very important observation that God functions as a cosmic priest in Genesis 1. He separates light and darkness, waters and land. Right? It's a priestly thing. That's going to be key in a moment. Let's just identify for a second that holiness in this text is not something that Israel has to somehow gain by performing the food laws. God says, or Moses says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. They're already holy. They don't have to earn their holiness through performing the food laws. You're holy. So live consistently with who God says you actually are. Yeah? Holiness is a gift given to Israel. They're, they're holy to the Lord their God. It's not something that they have to work for. They, they are holy. They're set apart. They have been identified and marked by Yahweh, the Lord. Obeying the food laws doesn't make them holy. It identifies them as holy. Right? Our works of obedience and faithfulness don't, don't make us right with God, but they can identify us as a people who are right with God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce worldly passions and ungodliness, to say no to stuff and to say yes to God. Hello, this is a question out there. Maybe we'll come back. We're coming back to that verse. I'm not ignoring it. So we're going to come back to it. So, you're, so they're holy. They're called holy. They don't get holy by eating the, by doing this. They, they are holy. Therefore, all right. And remember, they're about to enter the land. You're holy. Therefore, perform these as identity markers so that you are identified as a people holy to the Lord. But it's important to see that holiness is something that goes all the way down. In Israelite life. Okay? Holiness is not, Lord, I give you my heart. Oh, Lord, wonderful. Holiness is, get that out of the kitchen. <laughs> okay? 
Holiness is not just the high moments. Holiness touches the preparation of your meals, your very, subs- your very existence. You know, what you eat, the very ordinary stuff that sustains your life. Holiness goes all the way down. So the kitchen has as much to do with holiness as the sanctuary in Israel's life. The mundane is marked out by holiness, right? It's part of the point. Everything about you is marked out. You're a people holy to the Lord, your God. But the question still remains. How are the food laws, particularly, explicitly, how are these related to holiness? Why does it matter about the different types of animals and what you can and what you cannot eat? Well, I've reflected a little bit already on clean and unclean and separation. And we get to see this idea of separation reflected in Deuteronomy 14 in a number of ways. The first thing to notice, and I don't know whether you picked this out, is that there are different categories of animals that are mentioned. Did you see that? There were land creatures and sea creatures and air creatures. Now, what other text that's already been mentioned this afternoon refers to the division of land creatures and air creatures and sea creatures? Thank you very much. Genesis. Okay. It's the categories that Genesis 1 identifies as a part of God's creative ordering of the world, right? The categories in Genesis 1 correspond to God's separating, a priestly separating of land and sea and air as different spheres. (laughs) Spheres, I've got the word spheres into a more together than we are apart. Um, (laughs) Friends together on a mission. It's kind of Christ central bingo this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the categories in Genesis 1, that will basically mean that this seminar will be axed. It, we, it won't appear now, will it? Um, the categories are cheeked, Jeremy's values. Uh, the categories in Genesis 1 correspond to God's separating of land and sea as the spheres in which each type of creature lives and moves and eats. So the concern of Genesis 14, then, is to identify, and here's the number of this, it identifies in general terms. Okay? We want to make it very specific sometimes, but just in general terms, what's happening here is a description of what is normative for creatures that inhabit each particular sphere of existence, land creatures, sea creatures, air creatures. The creatures that are clean, that is the ones that are edible for the Israelites, are those that are normative. They best exemplify this particular type of thing in this particular type of place. There's no fuzziness. There's no blurring of boundaries. You belong there in that land creature. Cow, good. Pig, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Okay? The unclean creatures are those whose own dietary habits somehow cross boundaries. It's like, does it belong here? Does it belong there? It's unclear. It's sort of not really sure about you. So holiness somehow then is fundamentally associated with what is regarded as normative, as normal, as appropriate. Somehow, okay? A little aside here. Some people have suggested that, and I think this is again one of those Perhaps plausible, but then begs questions too, interpretations. Some people have suggested that one of the things that is at stake in these food laws is 
predatory behavior. There are certain creatures that prey on other types of creature. Not just that eat dead meat, but you know, that are kind of, there's a predatory thing going on. And perhaps the food laws are trying to teach the Israelites not to be a predatory people. Not to, I mean, think about the, the concern about the widow and the orphan and the alien amongst the Israelites. Perhaps this is a part of that. You know, don't be predatory. Don't be predatory in the kitchen. Don't be predatory in your social life. It's meant to speak to you about this holy identity. Um, it's begs questions, but it is, that's an interesting angle, particularly in the world that we live in. Okay? So I think, in other words, coming back to what we're talking about here, identity marks, holiness, separation, normative, what kinds of foods are right to eat. Deuteronomy 14 suggests that Israel's holiness has to do with the recognition and the upholding of God's ordering of creation. So much so that even to blur the lines of what is normative, God's ordering from chaos to order, by eating animals that cross boundaries somehow, is almost to like open the door ajar to chaos and an unraveling of the very fabric of God's order itself. Let's think about this. Israel's holiness is to be a, to be a people that reflects God to the world. There are people who uphold this is God's good world. And if God's good world is ordered and structured and there are norms, and yes, of course, the sin comes in and things have unraveled, but Israel is supposed to be part of a way of bringing that back together again, of highlighting the beauty and the structure and the wonder and the order of God's intention for creation. And so every bit of their life is supposed to reflect that. Have you ever thought about the tabernacle and the temple? How the curtain is, is kind of done like, like, it's like creation. And it's almost like the temple reflects the, 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 the heavens and then creation and the garden and all this. It's like this beautiful reminder of God's ordering of the cosmos. And so here in the food laws, it has to do with holiness, which is about upholding God's order in the world. And this is where the baby goat cooked in its mother's milk reappears. The practice of cooking a baby goat or a young goat in its mother's milk turns out to be, I think, the ultimate blurring of lines and the ultimate perversion of the normative. It's a desperate inversion of the created order. Because what you have is something that is intended to give and to sustain life, that is milk, a, a mother's milk, being used in something that contributes to its death and consumption. Right? The milk of a mother is to give and to sustain the life of its young. And when you take that thing and you make it about death and consuming you are twisting the way that things are supposed to be in God's good world. It's the ultimate example of a perversion of God's order. Okay? Can you see that? Does that, I mean, you might say, well, hang on, that's very plausible. Does that seem plausible? Okay? It's right at the end there, not as this bizarre Moses had a bit of a weird moment. It's right at the end there because it exemplifies the very thing that the food laws are supposed to be saying. 
Holiness is upholding order and life and pushing back against chaos. Cooking a baby goat in its mother's milk is undoing all of that in the darkest, worst possible way. Now, there are huge theological implications of this. And what I want to do briefly now is think about why, given the sort of, I mean, the sense of it, you feel the weight of that, don't you? Wow, okay, yes, gosh, I, this, is, this is big. So why does Jesus then, in Mark 7, declare all foods clean? What does it mean to fulfill, for Jesus to fulfill the law? And we would say, well, this is theologically rich and deep. Why, why does Jesus say, well, it's got nothing to do with what you eat anymore then? What's going on with that? Why did Jesus say that holiness had nothing to do with what you ate and everything to do with what came out of your heart? Well, I think we've got to continually remind ourselves that Israel's holiness was a holiness for God, primarily, but it was also a holiness for the world. I can think about the sweep of scripture. God calls Abraham and makes promises to him, and it's the redoing of the curse of sin. It's God's plan to restore order and to bless the nations. And Israel are a part of that process, a light to the nations. And they are there in the world to be a light. You know, Jerusalem, the, the, the Mount Zion, we lift it up and will be the highest of the mountains. All nations will flow to her. And the word will come forth from Zion. The Torah will go out from Zion. This light, this pinnacle, this beauty that will draw the nations to the worship of God and be restoring God's ways in the world. It's a holiness for God, but it's a holiness for the sake of the world. But when Jesus enters the world in the first century, I suppose it wasn't the first century for Jesus, but whenever, uh, when Jesus enters the world, Holiness for Israel has become very different. Holiness has become for Israel us against the world. Not a holiness for the world, a holiness over and against. We are holy, you are not. The Pharisees are intent on defining who is in and who is out based on their ever-narrowing definitions of what Torah faithfulness looks like. We are in, you are out. If you are a Roman, you are really out. And what we want is a king. We want a Judas Maccabeus type ruler to ride into Jerusalem and kick the butt of the Romans and give us our land back so that we can be a holy people with our God. Yes. So politics and religion is all very, very mixed up together. So when Jesus comes on the scene and declares the food laws obsolete, which is radical for the Pharisees, because that's one of the ways that you mark yourself out as being the real McCoy. And we want God to come. Oh, mark this. Mark this. God will only come if you do this right. If you keep holy, if you do these things, say the Pharisees. Well, I'm afraid God has come and he does it all the wrong flipping ways. He sits and he eats with the nobodies, the statusless. He takes a child and he puts it in the midst of the disciples. And he says, unless you've got to become like a child, it doesn't mean that you've got to become cute. He means that you've got to become statusless. Because a child is a statusless thing in that context and in that culture. Jesus deconstructs and then puts back together again the holiness laws. 
Jesus models a robust holiness that imparts life to the outsider, that confers upon them the identity and the dignity of the insider before they've even had the chance to change, while the unclean food is in their mouth and the blood is dripping from between their teeth. Jesus confers on them by faith in him the identity of insider. He undoes the strict interpretation of the Pharisees as a holiness for us and says, hey, it's a holiness for the world. And I'm going to show you by demonstrating that holiness goes out and cleanses and what it touches changes things. We talked about the young woman who reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, right? In the law, that makes Jesus unclean, right? According to Torah, that makes Jesus unclean. A bleeding woman, an unclean woman has touched him, and uncleanness is supposed to contaminate. But with Jesus, life goes the other way. She's contaminated with holiness, right? And it's beautiful because in Malachi, it says, when the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And that the wings is like the Jew, the rabbis interpreted that as the tassels on a, on a Jew's robe, on a rabbi's robe. And so when she reaches out and touches his robe, she's reaching because she, she believes this is Messiah. By faith. Uh, clean. Amazing. Okay. So the Holy One of Israel takes on flesh becomes you becomes human the, the, the flesh does not become word and move out of the, uh, the the neighborhood the word the supernatural becomes flesh don't dehumanize the gospel please hear me right please hear me right but it's very fleshly and very here and very tangible okay the holy is in the ordinary the word became flesh dwelt among us don't twist that and send it back again no thanks we don't want humanness well if it was good enough for the second person in the trinity is good enough for me oh okay we'll have to edit that bit that's naughty jesus redefines what normative looks like he redefines what holiness looks like jesus himself became the outsider so that those on the other side of normative somehow might become the true insiders with him. All right? It's wonderful. So here's the thing. When holiness becomes about exclusion and not about embrace, we're missing the point of holiness. Right? When it's about keeping that at bay, rather than, you know, we're missing the point. Because the Holy One appears and embraces and gathers the unclean and the impure and the statusless and the rejected and makes them to be insiders. Okay? When we turn it around, we're missing the point. When holiness becomes a posture that is focused on preserving a version of normal that is created in self-defense, we're missing the point of holiness. And Christians throughout the centuries have continually flirted with a holiness that is self defense you don't need to holiness is bigger and more powerful than that okay? when holiness becomes a means for defining the normal in order to keep the abnormal at bay then we're missing the point of holiness do i say this <laughs> Shh, you're naughty 
Okay, when holiness means that gay people, trans, addicted, homeless, refugee, poor, divorced, ex-offenders, repeat offenders, the widowed, single, chavs, elderly, male, female, when they are rejected before they've even had the chance to hear Jesus say, hi, we're missing the point of holiness. In short, when the church defines holiness as a means of identifying the insider in order to keep the outsider at bay, then the very people who were intended to give, sustain, and nourish the life of the world are effectively participating in its death. And when that happens, we've so perverted the gospel that we've made it the social equivalent of cooking a young goat in its mother's milk. And I don't think you really want to do that. Okay? There's a way of interpreting an Old Testament passage that's unusual carefully, taking into account a number of different possible interpretations of things, from allegorical interpretations, looking at hygiene questions, hmm, what does it mean, noticing the structure, how holiness frames it, and how holiness is probably the governing principle for it all, and taking the unusual verse and showing how it exemplifies the point of the passage, and then taking that and asking the question, well, how does this really relate to Jesus and the Gospels, and showing that Jesus' radical redefinition of holiness and purity makes it come really truly alive and fulfills that passage and those theological principles in ways that have huge social and ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical implications for Christians today. Okay? We've got about two minutes left. Does anyone want to ask a question? Or, and it's hot in here. You're doing really well. You've stayed awake. I'm really, I'm glad for that. Or do you just all want to go away and go, what the, what just happened? <laughs> I love times like that when you're like, I just, something just happened, but I just, I need to just think about that for a minute. Should we just do that then? Oh, wait, there's a guy. It's Ben, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've not We'll help. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, what was that last bit, sorry? Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about keeping food laws. Yeah, okay. Well, there's one thing keeping food laws out of a sense of honor. There's another thing keeping food laws because you feel that you've got to do this to bolster and keep people out. Right? That's, the, that's the point. When the food laws become about exclusion, then you've, you've gone wrong. It's about being a light to the world. And so Jesus is coming to redefine an agenda which is basically saying this marks us out against the enemy, the outsider, the people that we don't want to associate with, where God's holiness is about filling the earth and renewing and restoring and bringing order into chaos and, all, and the like. Okay? 
Also, be careful with the purpose of the law. Jesus fulfills the law. It's, that's the purpose and all manner of other things as well. Um, it's important that we understand what that exactly means and how you know, that, that kind of has a number of different angles on it as well. Rather than just, you know, he did that, the law said do that, and Jesus did it. It doesn't necessarily always mean that. There's, there's something else going on with it too. It's a, it's a bigger question. So. Sometimes you feel like it's that moment when it says in the Gospels, and then no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because they were looking at their watches and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm hungry. Right, okay, wait, right, la- this is going to be the last question. If you want to come and talk to me at the end, please feel free, but sure. Well, the Jews prior to Jesus, they, um, were supposed to be a blessing Yeah, well, yeah, because it's, it's, you could become a proselyte, and if you, you could either be a, you were a, God, a God-fearer in, in New Testament times as someone who sort of aligns himself, kind of. It's like what we might call people on the fringe in modern church parlance, you know? They don't mind hanging around the people of God, but they're not quite ready to be baptized yet. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a little bit of an anachronism, but maybe kind of think along those lines. A proselyte, a convert, was someone who would go all the way. If you were a man and be circumcised and, and you were obliged to keep everything, okay? you, you're right in and it's, the whole thing is then binding upon you. Yeah. The question was, uh, yeah. Did you hear the question? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, uh, okay, right, very, very last question. Yes. It's, a very, it's a very lovely, humble hand up. Uh, I, yeah, I, <laughs> right, I think I understand what you're saying, okay, if you're, if you're asking, is, is baptism the, the sort of the Christian, a Christian equivalent of an identity marker, then yes, okay, faith, baptism, repentance, receiving the spirit, are the, the kind of the, the quadrant of things that are the you know the, the, the Christian initiation thing, right? So it's a yes, um, absolutely. I mean, some people would suggest that some people would say that baptism relates to circumcision. It's like an entry into covenant membership. That would be a covenant theology that the baptized are the people of are the people of God. Um, but yes, in a certain sense, yeah. So it's no longer food laws that identify you as being the people of God. It's Jesus. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of the point of it all. You sort of identify with him, faith, repentance, baptism. Yeah. Was that the question? And is that the answer? Yeah. Okay. Let's call time on it there. You can come and ask me some questions. Can I pray for us? Just short. Honestly, it won't be a prayer meeting. Don't worry. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the scripture. And we thank you that you have, uh, in humility, chosen to speak to us in, in words and in language. Uh, the unknowable God has made himself knowable in uh, discernible, intelligible human speech. Uh, and we're grateful. Uh, and we ask that by your spirit, you would uh, cause us to, uh, to search out 
uh, to dig deep, uh, to think carefully and consistently, to, uh, to do that hard work of pursuing you and that, that kind of sense of spiral of loving you and then being drawn back into Scripture and loving you more. But we want to grow in this. We want to be good interpreters of your word, whether it's for sermons or for life in general. Lord, we want to be those who are confident, who can handle your word well, uh, who don't give in just with easy answers or, or set up straw men and knock them down. Lord, we want to be wise interpreters, good readers, careful readers that honor you and find your life overflowing into us as we do so. We ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.